everyone. It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. Annie Smith has the world's first podcast ever made for quilters. It's called Quilting Stash Podcast. Annie is a quilter, teacher, author, lecturer, and so much more for quilters of all interest levels. It was fun to visit and find out how she went from teaching a few classes on the side while working a full-time job to having her own quilt business, doing that for full-time. I especially enjoyed when Annie shares about color value, and I look forward to learning more about that in the future. Annie, it's great to have you on A Quilter's Life today. Hi, Paula. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in San Jose, California, and I am a fifth-generation Californian. And my ancestors on my mom's side were immigrant Italian and Portuguese, and then my dad's family came to California. He was from Kansas, and they came during the Dust Bowl in the early 40s just to be able to work. And my parents met each other at Campbell High School and got married after my mom graduated from high school. And I am one of five kids, and I am the middle kid. So I am the one who is strong and assertive and whatever I wanted growing up in my family dynamic, I always had to kind of fight for. And so uh, that's how I became the person that I am today. I loved being in California for many years. And then when our kids grew up and got married and decided that they needed to move out of California to be able to afford a cost of living and be able Mm -hmm. to buy homes and have a good place to raise their kids. Then uh, a year and a half ago, we decided to follow them because we were the only ones left in California. Our parents had passed and our siblings had followed their kids to the places where they (laughs) moved to. And so we were wondering what we were doing there. And now after the coronavirus and all the craziness that, you know, has come out of California since we moved, we're really happy that we're in Fort Worth, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in California also. And Did you really where? I live in Ohio. Um, Sonoma and, and Mendocino counties. Oh, of course. Her daughter-in-law grew up in Sonora. Uh, she was born in Jamestown. So when she was in high school and they filmed Back to the Future Part 3, uh-huh. they had the DeLorean on the tracks. And when they were jogging for PE, they came upon the car. And so they sat in the car and None of them had cameras because, of course, they didn't have cell phones yeah. at that time. But they just got the biggest kick out of it. And so when she met my son, Back to the Future is his favorite movie. And they got married in um, November 5th, 2005, which is one of the dates that was on the DeLorean. <laughs> So it was really special, but we were so happy when our son married her because we thought, great, a California girl. This is somebody from out of state who's going to want to move home and live with, you know, real close to her family. And then 
a year and a half after they got married, she got transferred with her job to North Carolina, and they were the first one who left. And then they started having kids. (laughs) So that's one of the reasons why I travel as much as I do to teach, because I teach a lot in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so it gives me a great period of time that I can spend at my son's house and see my grandkids. And then I go out and teach locally there, but then I also travel to New Jersey and Virginia, South Carolina, and other places in North Carolina to teach. And I always come back to them before I go home. (laughs) So I'm I'm coming back. I mean, they cry when I go to the grocery store. So what can I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll get back to your teaching in just a little bit here. Sure. So you live in Fort Worth now? Yes, we do. As a matter of fact, the exciting thing about living in Fort Worth is that when I was in California, I always felt like I always had a good amount of quilt shops to shop at. And more so several years ago as opposed to now because so many of the shops have closed. But when I moved to Fort Worth, I discovered that I have about 30 quilt shops within one hour of my house in any amount of radius that I can go to on any given day. (laughs) It's like there's a wealth of quilt shops. And not only that, they also have craft things, you know, to do, of course, you know, like bags and different things. But there are several knitting shops, which I also do, but then also a place where I can get stocking supplies because I have five granddaughters soon to be six that I discovered now I can make beautiful smocked dresses for. Oh, neat. Yeah. Plus, we love the culture of Fort Worth. It's very cowboy, cow town, you know, Mm -hmm. type of thing. Mm -hmm. And our kids have fully embraced it. You know, we live not too very far from the stockyard. What's fun is my husband's embraced it. (laughs) (laughs) You know. So the culture is really nice. It's a very, um, it's a young culture and it's kind of like a foodie culture. And so uh-huh. we love that part too. <laughs> cool. Back in California, do you have a special childhood memory? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, my most recent quilt, Love is Spoken Here, is based on that memory. So when my maternal grandparents had a 13-acre Bing cherry orchard, in San Jose. And in the center of it was their house. It was a house that they bought out of the Sears catalog. <laughs> and, oh, cool. uh, yeah. And then they had it delivered and it had a basement and it had an attic and the attic was where my granny used to have her sewing machine and make clothes. And she was never a quilter, but she was a master seamstress. She grew up making everything she wore down to a little pair of gloves that that I have in my possession that her stitches are so tiny that they would put the Amish to shame. It's just, it's an amazing thing to behold. So I grew up with an appreciation of handmade or homemade clothes that never looked homemade. They always looked like they had been bought in a store and my grand never used patterns. So she was my inspiration for sewing, which I did at an early age. 
but the memories of just being able to run through the cherry orchards and pick cherries out of the trees and be chased by jackrabbits. And my grandpa used to keep bees, and so we'd have to make sure and stay away from the beehive. But then he'd bring the honeycomb out, and he would can it in jars. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. And that is where my happiest childhood memories come from. That sounds like so much fun. I could about picture that in my mind, that farmhouse. So cool. Well, and I did put the house on the quilt, Love is Spoken Here, because the quilt is all about me and my grandmother and the love that we had for each other. And so I immortalized their Sears Roebuck house. (laughs) (laughs) So besides quilting, are there other crafts or hobbies that you have? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, yeah. You know, I enjoy so many different things. Like, I love doing genealogy. I love to read. Um, And those two things I don't get to do very often because I do travel so much. But I also knit. And there was one time when I was newly married and had just started quilting that I would quilt for one year. And then I'd put all that away. And then I'd knit for one year. And then I'd at the end of the year, I'd put that away and I'd pull the quilting out and, you know, resume whatever unfinished quilt I had made and then make as many quilts as I could during the year. And at one point, I just went, you know what? I love quilting so much. Why do I put it away for a year? This is ridiculous. What I need to do is just put the knitting away because quilting really is taking over my life. So at that point, probably in the late 80s, I put all my knitting away and then didn't return to knitting until, I don't know, maybe about 2008. (laughs) So now, because quilting is my full-time job, I work on quilts during the day. And then when I sit down to relax at night, then I either work on hand projects like English paper piecing or embroidery or smocking and knitting. But those are pretty much my hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> Who introduced you to quilting? You know, I think it was a series of people. Actually, I remember just before I got married, my sister came and stayed with my mom and went to a quilt symposium in Oakland, California. The East Bay Heritage Quilt Guild, which, you know, has been the home of just many, many incredible Um, California, San Francisco Bay Area quilters who have been real staple quilters in our industry come from. And so she came home and she showed me the quilt that she had started in a workshop and told me about the lectures that were being given. And I was just so impressed. And I just went, why didn't you take me with you? I would have enjoyed going to do that. But of course, she didn't know. But then I started dating my husband and I walked into his sister's house and right in the middle of the living room, there was this quilting frame with this beautiful applique quilt laid out on it 
that she and a bunch of her friends were making, and they would come over to her house and do the hand quilting on it. And I just thought, wow, I want to do that someday. And then also when I was dating my husband, I'd go over to visit him, and his mom had a stack of Better Homes and Gardens and Family Circle magazines that they always had a picture of the quilt and then the kit that you could buy for like $29.95. And I mentioned, you know, I want to buy that because I would like to make that someday. And it was just for a really simple log cabin quilt. And my sister-in-law said, oh, for Pete's sake, don't bother doing that. We can teach you how to quilt. But then they never did. So my sweet (laughs) husband, uh, when I was pregnant with our first baby, we were in Tower Records, which is a record store, but they had a book department in it. And I was standing there looking at quilting books and I pulled this one book out called Let's Make a Patchwork Quilt. And it showed you how to make a quilt all just by using a needle and thread and doing everything by hand. So using cereal box templates and drawing around them with a pencil and then cutting them out with great big eight inch shears to give it the quarter inch seam allowance and then stitching on every drawn line because that gave you your stitching line. That was in 1980 and we didn't get the rotary cutter until 1983. And so there was no such thing as a rotary (laughs) cutter or rulers to cut with. Sewing by machine was acceptable, but this book showed you how to do it the traditional way. And so I actually taught myself how to quilt because all the people who promised that they'd show me weren't available. (laughs) (laughs) So, but that's okay. Yeah. Neat experience though. Yeah. See, it's the middle kid in me (laughs) that makes me go, oh, I don't need you to show me. I can do it myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Describe your favorite quilt or quilt pattern that you use. Oh, okay. So, you know what? I have to tell you, my favorite quilt is not anything that I've designed, okay? My very favorite quilt was designed by Janet Miller of the City Stitcher Patterns. It is called Patriotic Rose, and it is flags that are laid out on the quilt like an X on the diagonal, and then it has all of these um, traditional Baltimore applique roses all around the quilt and it is just so beautiful so i have taught it and i've actually made the quilt several times but i've made it for other people i've never made one for myself and i need to make one for myself that that is my ultimate favorite pattern and janet miller is the designer (laughs) (laughs) so neat i was going to tease you are you waiting until you get just the right colors for it Well, actually, you know, before I moved to Texas, I did a purge, you know, Marie Kondo style. Mm -hmm. And um, so I sold off 70% of my studio, including three featherweight machines. And those were the three things that went first. I could have sold 50 featherweights that I had. (laughs) But um, I sold my fabric and I let the fabric go that I had kept in my stash for so long to make that quilt I just thought I just want to make something new so when I make it I'm going to use all brand new fabric and when I find the fabric I will know that it that it's time to make that quilt yeah so what's your favorite tool my favorite tool oddly (laughs) enough okay 
over and above my rotary cutter. And we all know how precious our rotary cutters are to us. My favorite tool for quilting is the clover fork pin. And that is a pin that it's bent so that you have two points. And when you butt your seams, then you straddle, you pin your on, on either side of the stitching line at the mm-hmm. same time. And it gives you a perfectly aligned seam every time. And because your seams are perfectly aligned, then your points will be perfect and they won't disappear into the seam allowance and they won't float out into the air like, you know, they're (laughs) floating in the sky. They will always be exactly where they're supposed to be. And for that reason, those are my favorite pins. And whenever I teach, I give every one of my students at least one of them. Huh. Yeah. What are they called? Clover? Clover fork pins. They come in a little aqua box. And they're, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to $12, depending on where you buy them. And there are 30 pins that come in a box. But let me tell you, those pins are worth their weight in gold. Wow. <laughs> they're the best. I picture that would be quite the time saving, too, because right now I'm putting a pin in the seam line and then doing two more pins, one on each side of it. Yeah. And you know what? It, it is so difficult to get them accurate. But because of the fork pins, they're accurate every time. Huh. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, it's so funny, Paula, because so many people have them but don't know how to use them. You know, I mean, when I found them, there was a, a review on them in Quilter's Newsletter magazine. And I thought, oh, I'll have to look for those. And then like six months later, I found them on a notions wall. So I went, oh, I need to buy those. <laughs> and they sat in my sewing cabinet for a year and a half before I found the need for them. And wow. I was piecing this very, very piecing-centric block and I was just so frustrated because I kept having to pick my seams out because I couldn't get my seams aligned. And mm-hmm. I was so frustrated. I put my head in my hand and leaned it on my sewing cabinet. And I opened my eyes and there was the box <laughs> of pins. And I went, oh, now I know what I need to use those for. <laughs> and so it's just crazy. I wish I had stock in, in the Clover Company because... I just, I love those pins so much, and I give them away all the time. What's your favorite part of the quilting process? Oh, wow. (laughs) For me, it's choosing the fabric, I think, because that's one of my areas of expertise that I have grown and practiced over and over and over again in my life. I choose fabric based on, first, Choosing a color palette, so if it's pink, blue, and green, then whatever fabrics that I choose, I make sure that I have pink from very light to very dark, blue from very light to very dark, and green the same way. And so as long as you stay in that color family, then your quilt will end up being pink and yellow and green. I think that's what I said, didn't I? I think pink, said yellow, and green. Blue. Pink, blue, and green. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As long as you stay in that color family, 
that's what your quilt is going to end up being. But in order to get the clarity in your blocks and the integrity of the block pattern that you're using or the pattern of the quilt that you're using, you need to have value changes. That's the most important part of choosing fabric for a quilt. Because once you establish your color palette, then everything else that you choose has to be able to be seen. And so if you choose fabrics that are really busy with print and a bunch of different colors, you're going to lose the clarity of the design that you're trying to make. But as long as you stick with value changes in your fabric selections, then you'll be just fine. So let me clarify this one thing, because there are a lot of quilters who just don't know this. As quilters, we use five values of fabric. Light, medium light, medium, medium dark, and dark. And it's not that we use just five fabrics, but those are the five values that we should look for when we are choosing the fabrics for our quilts. If we don't have value changes, so steps from light to dark, then everything is going to just blend together and be blurry and you'll lose your original pattern. Tell me about your worst quilting experience. Okay. I would say my worst quilting experience happened while I was teaching a class. There's a class that I teach called Color Sense. And the first day we just play with fabric and quilters get to learn how to choose their fabric by value. Then on the second day, we actually create the blocks for the quilts. So they have to choose 10 fat quarters, go home, cut them all up, and then the next day we design. Well, I use something that I call batting boards, which is foam core board cut into a 13-inch square that has um, warm and natural batting glued to it so that it becomes a little personal design wall or it's just a design board. So what I do is I teach them how to design their blocks on that board. And I came to the class with like 20 different blocks that were designed but haven't been sewn yet. And they were on the table when we left that first day. Mm -hmm. And when I came in, the blocks were all empty sitting on the table and a great big pile of cut pieces. Oh, no. The husband had come in to vacuum the floor in the classroom and hit my batting boards with his hip. They went all over the floor. (laughs) And I hadn't taken pictures of any of them because at the time we didn't have smartphones with cameras. And I hadn't taken pictures of any of them. So I had to figure out how to design them all over again. And, of course, you can never duplicate what you've already done because Mm -hmm. it's just a new inspiration that you find. So um, that was probably the worst one I've ever experienced. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Were people starting to arrive for the class when it was still all apart, or were you able to get them sorted out? Oh, no. It it was something that I just, I put all the pieces in a Ziploc bag and took them home. <laughs> 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 and had them redesigned at home. 
Yeah, it it was that bad a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. Why do you make quilts? Well, Paula, I've asked myself that many, many times. I have friends who play the piano beautifully, even without having to read music, and I cannot play the piano. I have friends who are just the most brilliant gardeners or can make the lightest, fluffiest loaf of bread. And I do neither of those two. (laughs) But I think I quilt because I sewed my own clothes growing up. And I worked in a fabric store when I was in high school and used to make all my clothes except for Levi's because who can improve upon perfection, you know. (laughs) Levi's were perfection back in the 70s. So I had this impression in my mind that all good mothers make their child a quilt when they're expecting them so that their baby comes into the world with a quilt. And, of course, that's not true. There are many, many good mothers who do not quilt. But that was my perception, you know, getting into it with my sister and especially being influenced by my in-laws because they were all prolific quilters. So when I started, I just really fell in love with it. It's, I think it's the tactile nature of the textiles that we use and learning how to quilt by hand and just stitching everything with needle and thread that just really got me. But then I had two babies back to back, so I have Dutch twins. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to lose my mind. <laughs> The first year after I found my second baby, and my husband said, sweetheart, just go and take a quilting class, you know. So I was gone, like, on one Wednesday night a week for three weeks from 630 to 930, and it saved my sanity. And very soon after I started taking classes, I went into a quilt shop to buy a sewing machine, which just happened to be a Bernina. I am a Bernina girl and a Bernina ambassador. But my first sewing machine I bought was a Bernina. And while I was test driving the machine, the shop owner said, do you know how to teach? And I said, well, of course I know how to teach, (laughs) you know, lying through my teeth. And she said, great, because I'm looking for another teacher. Would you like to come and teach classes for me? I was overjoyed. That was in 1984, just four years after I started quilting. And I have been teaching almost nonstop ever since then. And now it is my full-time job. I have thought a lot, why is quilting so important to me? And I don't know. I think it picked me. And I, Mm -hmm. I think that's why I do it. Then on to who do you make them for? Well, obviously, I started out making one for my daughter, and then I made one for my son. And then the very next quilt that I made was a king-size quilt for our bed. (laughs) You know, I don't know what it is about us overachievers, but we always say, well, if we can make a baby quilt, we can make a king-size quilt. I have have so many students who do that. It's like first quilt right out of the chute. Oh, no, I don't want to make a baby quilt. I want to make a king-size quilt. (laughs) But, you know, somehow it all works out. So I make quilts really more nowadays for my students than I do for people in my life. Although, you know, because of the quarantine, when I got home, I couldn't 
do anything because, okay, so I was in North Carolina and I was teaching and I still had two more weeks to teach when the country shut down. And so mm-hmm. my classes also got shut down. So I went, oh, I got to come home now. So when I came home, I was in quarantine for two weeks and couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. It was a very unsettling time, I think, for all of us. And I just thought, you know what, I can't work on anything that I have to be working on for teaching because my teaching gigs have gone away. And I want to work on things that make me happy and fill up my soul. Because if I don't do something that will allow me to do that, I'm going to start getting depressed, (laughs) you know, (laughs) just being in house day after day after day. And so I did a quilt along, an online quilt along for the very first time in my entire life. So I made that quilt for one of my granddaughters. And then Me Made May came up on Instagram, which is for the month of May, you do posts about clothing that you have made yourself. And so I pulled out clothes from the last 20 years <laughs> or pictures of them um, to be able to post for Me Made May because there were 31 days of, of entries, right? And uh-huh. so um, I have always maintained making my own clothes because that makes me really happy. So when I go out and teach, I want to wear clothes that I make Number one, so that I can inspire quilters to get back into making their own clothes. But also, I pack my own, the clothes that I've made, because then I don't have to think about what I'm going to wear and putting outfits together. Because I really like looking professional, and so I wear a lot of dresses. And these aren't like business-type dresses. They're just like summer dresses that I really love to wear because they make me happy. So now you know, that I have a little more time on my hands due to this lovely quarantine that's still in effect where I live. I am making more clothes. I mean, I have a healthy stash of quilting fabric, but I also have a healthy stash of dressmaking fabrics. So that's what I'm doing. And so I realized that I have been remiss about getting baby quilts to my last three grandchildren. And uh, so I'm working on those too. (laughs) But so the answer is I really make quilts for my family, but mostly I make them to be able to be samples for teaching. Yeah. Do you have a tip to share? Yes. As a matter of fact, you know, I did this as uh, an Instagram live. So you can go up to my Instagram, and my Instagram is Annie Smith QS, as in quilting stash. I did it as a video, and I showed people how to fold their fabric so that they could organize it easier. And there is this one way that I fold all of my fat quarters so that they come out to be the size of a CD case. And so I use an old CD rack to house all of my fat quarters. And then, because I have three of these racks, because my husband and I used to be DJs, I have one that is filled up with all of my half-yard cuts. And then I have some IKEA shelves that I keep everything that is a one-yard cut or larger 
so that when I go to shop out of my stash, I know exactly what I'm picking, exactly how much yardage I have to play with. And if I need more, I can't use a fat quarter unless I have four of those because Mm -hmm. I might need a yard. And I usually don't have four fat quarters because I like to do very scrappy quilts. And so I usually just buy one fat quarter of fabric that I like. Hmm. So my tip is in the way you fold your fabric, you can organize it easier. You don't need comic book boards or anything like that to be able to organize your fabric. All you do is fold it this certain way. And if they go to my Instagram, they can watch the video. (laughs) Oh, neat. Yeah. Well, you kind of answered the first question I had written down to ask about your business and how you switched from sewing or quilting for yourself to having a business. I take it that first step was starting to teach at the fabric store? Well, it was, but you know what? I have a different story that actually took me into being a business. Okay, great. (laughs) Would you like me to share that? Oh, please do. Okay. When my kids were little, my husband had a career change, and I had to go to work full-time. And it was definitely not what I wanted to do. I always only ever wanted to be an at-home mom and work on quilts and teach quilting classes and kind of, you know, design quilts and get into the quilting industry that way, as so many of us have done. But for me, I needed to work full-time. But I always kept my hand in teaching at the local quilt shop. So I teach a class three nights a week for three weeks. And that would, you know, be the project. And then I'd schedule another one. And so I never did it on a regular basis, just like maybe three classes a quarter or something like that, because I was working full time. Plus, I had kids at home who had homework and baseball games and all that stuff. So I worked full time in Silicon Valley building call centers. So, you know, the places where you call in and, you know, choose one for sales and two for support and blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And then during the dot-com bust, all of the call centers in the United States went over to India. And all of a sudden, overnight, I did not have a job. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? My husband had already been unemployed at that time as well. Silicon Valley is a very volatile market for employment. And at that point, that was the fifth time my husband and I were unemployed at the same time. And it was very long. It was for a two-year period of time. But And that doesn't include the times that I was laid off or he was laid off and the other one of us continued working. <laughs> so it was always a challenge to figure out what to do when we were both unemployed at the same time. So before the dot-com bust hit, we could always find a job and within two weeks we were employed again and everything was lovely. But when the dot-com bust hit, it changed things. And then when 9-11 hit, just a few months later, then all of the rules changed for how to get a job. And it was just non-existent in Silicon Valley, okay, which is what my husband's and my talent and experience was in. And so I just thought, well, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I could hang a quilt in the local quilt shop 
and in a month, I will have eight students, and that's full class. That's what the classroom will hold. So I'll just teach classes until the market softens up again, and I can go back to work. Well, everybody after 9-11 wanted to do things that they had always wanted to do but kept putting off because everybody was just in such shock. And they also needed something that would help them process and heal from the trauma that was 9-11. And so I had full class after full class after full class. No matter what quilt I hung in this quilt shop, people wanted to take, and it was full, and there was a waiting list, so I had to run it again. So after about six months, I was teaching five days a week, (laughs) and it became my full-time job. So when I had nothing left but quilt tops to put up as samples for classes, they wanted to take those too. And then when I was completely done and I had nothing else to hang, they said, well, Annie, what are you going to teach us next? And I said, well, I've given you everything I've got. And they said, oh, no, that's not true because you're designing a quilt for your son who is returning from a mission. And, well, we want to learn how to make that too because it was a Christmas quilt. And I said, well, I only have the first two rows done. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. Just start teaching those. And then by the time it comes to the third class, you'll have designed and ready to show us. So you can kind of design it and then teach it to us. And then your quote will be done. And so that's (laughs) what they did. And so they inspired me to keep working on it and work on a deadline. And then when the quilt was done, they said, well, Annie, we think that should be your first pattern. So why don't you make a pattern out of that and sell it, and then you'll be a pattern designer. And I was just like, well, that's a great idea. I've always wanted to do that. Then they wanted a quilt that would stretch them technically, and so I designed a sampler quilt that had all of these different techniques in the blocks And that's kind of my signature quilt. I teach that actually online as an online class only. So I've never made a pattern of it. I've always kept it as an online class because each of the techniques needs to be taught rather than having someone deciphering the instructions of pattern. And then they wanted me to design a block of the month for them. And which became my West of Baltimore quilt, which is the quilt that everybody knows me by because it was in the Keepsake Quilting Catalog for two and a half years from 2007 to 2009 when the Keepsake Quilting Catalog was still really viable. Hmm. And so that was really quite an honor for them to offer my quilt. That's really how my business just its kind of like a snowball rolling downhill. You know, it started mm-hmm. out as that one class at the quilt shop and just having quilters just wanting to take more and more and more and more and more and then becoming a designer, going to quilt market, being invited to be on Alex and Ricky's quilt show. And I became a C&T author and have done two books and everything, everything that I've done started from that um, how to recover from the dot-com bust. Wow. Before I got on here with you, I wrote down so many of these things that you've done and are doing, I'm thinking, how do you do it all? (laughs) (laughs) 
No, I know what you mean, Paula. And you know what? I have really good friends who make quilts, but they do it outside of their full-time jobs. And they do it when they have time, you know, which is precious. And I had one friend say, oh, Annie, I just can't imagine this. How do you do what you do? And my answer is, it is my full-time job. So that's what I do Monday through Friday and sometimes in the evening, sometimes on Saturday when I'm working on a deadline. But it's just years and years and years that I've been doing it, and that's how I've accomplished it all, <laughs> just time and because I, I dedicate myself. So I don't have anything else other than my family that takes me away from quilting from time to time, you know, with needing to spend time with them, obviously. <laughs> you know, I always say that my family is the most important thing in my life, and then it's quilting, but my family will look at you and go, and they'll be shaking their heads as it's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> but, you know, they help me a lot. You know, they are my pattern stuffers and folders, and, you know, they load the car for me and unload the car for me when I come back from trip. They are my biggest cheerleaders and my biggest support, even my grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> they love to see me doing YouTube videos and uh, stuff like that and seeing the online classes and the places where I've been. That's so neat. Can you tell me what it was like to see a design that you had made done by somebody else? Oh, golly. Oh, yeah. It It is always an incredible and humbling experience for me. I think, you know, the West of Baltimore quilt is just so well known. It's been around the world. It's been featured in quilt festival in one of Ellie Sienkiewicz's Baltimore revival exhibitions. And of course, you know, being in keepsake quilting. So I think the most humbling experiences I've had with experiencing that is seeing what other people have done with my pattern. And so one in particular just blew me away. I saw it just after the first of the year. Lydia Middaw, who was also a quilt designer, and she is on one of the Facebook groups, which is Wool Applique. She took my quilt, and the background fabric is dotted grunge fabric in a chocolate brown. So absolutely gorgeous. And then all of the applique for the quilt she did on top of it was all felted wool and and embroidery. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, it made me want to go into my (laughs) studio and make one. (laughs) Because it was just so beautiful. But, you know, it's really fun to see your design made from somebody else that makes you stop and go, wow, that's an incredible quilt, and then realize that it's your pattern that you're looking at. And so that kind of happens on a regular basis. (laughs) (laughs) My students send me pictures because I ask them to. Because it's the only way that I can see their finished work, you know, because when we leave a class, all of their quilts are still in process. And so I just got back several pictures from a guild that I did a Zoom meeting with last week. So Mm -hmm. many of the quilters have their quilt tops done, and they are just gorgeous. That's the payoff for me. (laughs) How fun. And how did 
you feel when you saw your work or your quilt in these magazines? Oh, okay. So I've seen that too. <laughs> um, you know, it's always really an honor to see something like that. And of course it's exciting, but it's also really very humbling. And I think those of us who do have things out in the wild, so to speak, you know, in magazines and things like that need to maintain a humble attitude about them because just because they're in a magazine doesn't mean that we're now the queen of quilting. It just means that we're being recognized. And, you know, if if you feel too much like, wow, you know, I I am so wonderful that my thing is in this magazine, then you're kind of missing the mark. And so I I think being able to have that humble attitude of, wow, that is really kind of cool and not acting like the queen of quilting is yeah. important. <laughs> Can you explain to me what an artist in residence is? Yes. As a matter of fact, I was artist in residence for empty schools seminars in California in 2009. And what that meant was that I had a separate area set up where I could work on whatever project I wanted to work on during a week-long quilting seminar, and people could come and see me and see what work that I was doing because, you know, I'd have a design wall to put each of the separate pieces. The people who were in all of the different classes, they would come in a couple times a day and just stop in, see how my work was progressing. But most important about being artist in residence is that they had evening programs every night of the week. And the first night where they welcomed everybody, I was the keynote speaker. And I gave a half hour long lecture on why I was there, what I was doing. But specifically, the topic of my lecture was not being afraid to work on something that is uniquely yours during the week that you're going to be there and not making something that you thought would make the teacher happy or somebody else happy, but something that made you happy and made you feel like you were whole and just embrace the creativity, which is yours. Then the stage had all of my quilts hanging. And so it was like, museum trunk show (laughs) (laughs) that were up on the stage for the week. And it was just really one of the most thrilling times of my life. So many, many years ago. But I love to do artist in residence events because you are a featured artist and people come and see you and see your work. And that is pretty much what an artist in residence is. Thank you for explaining that. Sure. And my last question here is, it looks like a lot of your quotes have applique. Do you lean more towards applique or not? My two areas of expertise are choosing fabric and doing machine applique. And I learned how to do machine applique in 1999 at one of the M-Schools week-long seminars. And my teacher was Sue Nichols, who is like the queen expert on doing machine applique. And 
I just, when I was in that first class, I just loved it so much that I came away from there thinking, I am going to do this for the rest of my life mm-hmm. because I love it so much. Because I love antique applique quilts. And there was this one quilt that I wanted to do about my maternal grandmother, which ended up being what is spoken here. <laughs> and so I learned how to do it, and then I practiced it, and I practiced and practiced and practiced. And I teach it, and also the two books that I did for C&P Publishing are the Ultimate Applique Guidebook and the Ultimate Applique Reference Tool having to do with applique. And so I am experienced with it, (laughs) right, (laughs) after all this time. But so when I teach it, I have students say, wow, you know, how long is it going to take me to master this? And the great part about it is that machine applique has a very shallow learning curve. Hmm. And it's just some very simple steps that you need to do in order to do it well. And then it's just practice to learn how to master it. It came easily to me, which I'm really thankful about. And I really do love it very much. And so I still piece a lot, but, you know, the thing that I'm really known for is my applique. And so I really love doing pieced quilts with applique in them. And so Uh I have many of those as well. Is there anything else you would like to share with me? Well, just thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Paula. I'm so excited because, you know, I started the first podcast for quilters back yeah. in uh, April of 2005. And at the time, nobody knew what to do with me. It was like, what is a podcast? Even though podcasts have been around for about four years. But now, in the last year or so, podcasts have a real good foothold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are listening to podcasts all the time. And so I think when I did mine, I was ahead of my time. And so I let it go for a couple of years because I was just burned out. I yeah. was burned out on life, um, really more than just doing a podcast. But now I really want to get back into it. So now I'm thinking about coming back and actually Talking to you and having the opportunity on your podcast makes me realize just how much I love talking and doing podcasts. And so I'm so grateful for this opportunity. I'm very grateful to talk to you, Paula. Very grateful. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to have the time to chat with me and do this interview. I'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. this episode of A Quilter's Life, you can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Thanks for listening.